This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the International Book Festival and the Guardian Spiegel Tent. I hope you're comfortable um, and clutching perhaps in your hands the coffee from those lovely people at Heritage Portfolio, who must be terribly civilised, I think. Um, <coughs> could we use the next few moments? If you have a phone that is likely to go buzz beep or otherwise make a racket, could you root in your bag and just turn it to silent? That would be very kind. And if you had the slightest temptation to attempt flash photography, maybe you could restrain that as well. That would be very kind. Um, what we're going to do is simply have wall-to-wall -wall Paul Durkin, hallelujah, for an hour. Uh, then there, we'll be going around to the signing tent. So if you have any questions or comments with your books, please come with those afterwards to the, to the book tent. That would be wonderful. It's my real pleasure, I work at the Scottish Poetry Library, so it really is a real pleasure for me to introduce Paul Durkin. Uh, I believe the last time he was at the book festival was 1995, and the general consensus seems to be that's been a bit too long since the return. Um, he's mostly going to be reading from his new book, which is the wonderfully titled Praise in Which I Live and Move and Have My Being. And he's also maybe going to read a little from uh, Life is a Dream, uh, selected poems from 2009. I'm going to desist from prattling because I'd like Paul Durkin to read for as long as possible. Can I please welcome Paul Durkin? On Glimpsing a Woman in Hodges Figures Bookshop in Dublin. I am standing in line at the checkout of Hodges Figures Bookshop in Dublin when I spot a woman pluck a book off a counter, fling it open, and start to write on the title page with a retractable ballpoint biro. She repeats the action. She repeats it again. I am wrong-footed. All the more so because she's an unlikely-looking book psychopath. <laughs> Tall, blonde, ponytail, blue denim outfit, country and western boutique style. Although it costs me my place, I drop out of line and slope around the book counter like a sheepdog on a recce, wet-eyed to identify the title of the book and what is she writing in it. Perching on my hind legs, I see it's entitled Champagne Kisses by Amanda Brunker. And in each copy, in huge characters, she is inscribing the words Amanda Brunker. Inscribing them with such concentrated flourishes as if the book was the Book of Kells. She turns around to a bookshop assistant and remarks in a low, husky voice, Oh, I was just passing and I saw my books on your shelf, so I thought I'd sign them for you, okie dokie. Cool. The author herself, Amanda Brunker. The first thing I think is that Amanda Brunker is mortal. The second thing, I think, is that Amanda Brunker is a looker. 
The third thing I think is roll over Jane Austen. <laughs> what cunning, what audacity, what breezy arrogance. After she rides out of the shop on her white bronco, I take down her book and read the first paragraph. Why did I have a full Irish for breakfast? It's as if I am mechanically programmed to make the wrong decision at every available opportunity. Such candor. <laughs> such detail. Such insight. Such information. And all in the first paragraph story of my own life. Why did I park on the fourth floor of the multi-story car park when I knew if I parked on the sixth floor I'd have direct access to the supermarket? It's as if, why did I agree a year ago to participate next week in the poetry marathon at the World Ploughing Championships in Darlington when I knew it would cause me nothing but humiliation and exhaustion? It's as if, why did I have a cappuccino in Starbucks when I knew I could have got a far tastier, cheaper, and more agreeable cappuccino in the adjacent Topaz filling station? <laughs> it's as if, Amanda, thank you for putting into words what makes me tick. Me thinks I tick too much. On the other hand, soon I'll not be ticking at all. Go for it, Amanda Brunker. Go for it. The most extraordinary innovation. What an extraordinary thing it is to be nursed. Ordinarily, I'd be skulking in my den, <coughs> nursed. All of a sudden, to be taken in hand in the public ward of a general hospital, Mayo General Hospital in Castlebar, nurtured, nourished by a female stranger. Can you believe that it happens? Human nature being what it is, oppressive, manipulative, malicious, callous. Kindness, support, gentleness, humor, warmth, conversation, food, sleep, conviviality, confiance, companionship. For me, these are freakish things. Whether you're a boy of 13 from a dysfunctional family or a man of 64 living alone like a wounded animal, to have women at your hospital bedside emptying buckets of tenderness over your head, hosing you down with solicitude, is something ridiculously out of the ordinary. Prayer would seem abstract by comparison. Did Virgil or Dante ever witness such scenes? You cry out, I am not used to this. Hold on, wait a minute. What have I done to merit such treatment? All I have done is to get myself injured. But she cannot wait, she is busy. 26 other patients to attend to before the Angelus as she gives you an intravenous injection. Whether you like it or not, she injects you with smiles also. And all the while you lie there transfixed like a cornered hedgehog. Her eyes run up and down your hairy, lumpy, veiny body like rabbits in a sandhill to nurse, to be nursed. To be nursed back to health or unto death. From the Latin, to nourish. Slim, sturdy, buxom nourishers, almost anonymous. Teresa, Joan, Neve, Anne-Marie, Helena, Louise, Nicola, Marie. 
of all the innovations of humankind. Nursing is the most extraordinary innovation of all. The lamb around my neck. One night in Connemara, Nestor Thornton stopped me. Jump into the care and come with me. Nestor would have been about 28. I was 16. He was a jack of all trades, including a hackney driver. But first and last, Nestor was a sheep farmer. On no road known to man, he drove up the side of a mountain, telling me his plan. On a black, moonless, starless night, when he got out of the car, leaving the headlights on, I'd stand at the head of two dry stone walls, and when he'd heard a lamb towards me, I'd hurl myself through the air, body tackling it, and he'd tie up its legs. So it came to pass that I found myself walking back down a mountain to a car with a lamb around my neck, gripping tight a pair of lamb's legs in each hand. But when I came to the open boot of the car, I kept on walking. I kept on walking, talking to myself, down the dry stone gauntlets of the years through byways in London, Moscow, Toronto, Hiroshima, Galway, Paris, Rio, Jerusalem, Invercargill, Kiel, Scarborough, Skopje, Warsaw, Nova Scotia, Berlin, Tyneside, Vancouver, Luxembourg, Perugia, Funchal, Mainz, Lisbon, Edinburgh, Poznan, Destol, Canberra, Scunthorpe, Antigonish, Edenderry, The Hague, Ilkley. Portmuck, Rotterdam, Limerick, Brighton, Cork, Singapore, Cornerbrook, Brisbane, Kilorgan, Stockholm, Dublin, Belfast, Glasgow, Gort, Dumfries, Saskatoon, Fortaleza, Chicago, Tbilisi, Ballymahan, Westport, New York, Ann Arbor, Boyle, Lumera, Ackle, through Knackers, Yards and University Cloisters, Gutters and podiums, doss houses and tea rooms, dives and idols, with the lamb around my neck. Until not even in the county hospital tonight can the ward sister be bothered to separate us. In a bed, in the corner of a swarming public ward, I fall into a deep, restful sleep with the lamb around my neck. The boy from Belarus, out of luck on a Tuesday night in Brisbane, crumbs on the carpet. I switched on the TV. Oh, God, no! Sport! <laughs> Athletics from Osaka, Japan, the World Championships, the final throws in the men's hammer-throwing final. It dawned on me through my half-open elsewhere eyes. 
up into the circle, the screened-off cage, stepped the boy from Belarus, who had done nothing in the competition, the commentator said. He drawled his Slavic name as if it was a name he did not like, a name like Putin, only it wasn't Putin. It was something more like Sutin. The boy from Belarus was a big, fat boy with a seriously nice face. You can imagine him being kind and funny to his brother and sister. Gripping the ball and chain, he revolved slowly in the circle in the screened-off cage, beginning slowly to spin, accelerating, spinning as if he was totally out of it, as if he was totally in the grip of the hammer. Big fat boy from Belarus, spinning faster than a Formula One racing car gone out of control, about to vanish up into the bleachers of the stadium, never to be seen again on this side of the cosmos, about to evaporate in a sliver of samurai sky, about to expire once for all in Osaka, about to consummate his own nothingness. What boys surely are always doing, are wanting to be doing, only at the last moment letting go of his hammer, yet maintaining his foothold, staying on his feet inside the circle, the needle of his groin quivering inside the screened-off cage of his soul. The commentator was hyperventilating, howling hyperbole, but the boy was laughing. He knew what he'd done, without even having to look up from his spot without even having to bother to track the trajectory of his hammer throw, to witness its upshot, his missile landing out beyond anyone else in the known world. I, in my pokey sofa in a motel room in Brisbane, under a dying 60-watt bulb on a night with no future, I laughed also at the spectacle of such beauty, such innocence, such boyish optimism, his black hair in his eyes. His name, I googled it next day in an office in a warehouse in Fortitude Valley, was Ivan Tikhan, the boy from Belarus. the clothesline. I'm 64, and do you know why it is when there's a bit of sun, I sit out on a kitchen chair in the yard beside the clothesline? The clothes on the clothesline keep me company. A pair of white chinos leaping up and down in a whirling breeze. A blue bath towel wrapping itself around itself. Two black T-shirts bragging their bare black chests. Two pairs of black boxer shorts crinkling slightly, their careers almost over. <laughs> A red jumper hanging dead as if playing dead. Two pairs of black socks open-mouthed like four drunk boars. Striped pyjama bottoms giving me the two fingers. 
their top facing down the black TV dish over my head, yet seeming to trumpet at me through each trunk-like arm. Watch it! <laughs> After 64 years of companionship and conviviality on a summer's day, these are my friends, the friends I have left, my clothes on the clothesline. And even if they are, so to speak, silent friends, their arms, their legs, their torsos keep me company for an hour or two. Charitably, they overlook my mortality. <clears throat> Post haste to John Moriarty, Easter Sunday, 2007. My dear John of Moivan, author of Serious Sounds. On Good Friday in Westport, a day of pure sunlight, in the newsagents on the Mall, I heard the news that the Stations of the Cross would be at three o'clock in a valley in the mountains, Maumain, the Pass of the Birds. I got a lift to Maumain from Dr. John Kane. The back road past Drummond, down the Erif River, on up through the oasis of Linan, up along the Killery Fjord, past the tiny tented chapel of Our Lady of the Wayside at Creva, pegged down on the moor above Wittgenstein's cottage, down into the Aina Valley, the skulls of the mountains, the same as they were before prehistory began. The mountain path was the bed of a winter stream, stony, slippery, all clefts, pebbles being washed away by streams of pilgrims, brisk hill walkers, middle-aged warriors, undaunted young marrieds, separated spouses scampering in desperation, children asking questions, old people on their hind legs. I crept past two aged, crippled sisters from Camus, talking in Irish, royally, and I could hear you, John, among their cadences, their luscious crevices, your torrential whispers, et aggressus est Jesus, condiscipulus suus, trans torrentum kedron. There you were, John, grasping your staff in the sun and the wind, your iconic head, the birth pangs of the universe reproduced in your hair, furrowed furlongs of your face terraced in suffering and joy, greeting your creatures, lapwing, lark, lamb, at 1,200 feet on the saddle of the pass, the islands of Connemara to the west, the plains of the Joyce country to the east. Christ Jesus, how are you? I bring the thunder in my right hand. Up above us in the mouth of a cave swayed a white-haired, brown-faced man in white shirt, blue jeans, Jojan Makanomara of Kilkiroin, intoning the lament in the Shan Nos, Huina Nadri his hands on his hips, <coughs> the stones of Connemara shining in his cheekbones. 
the stones of Palestine, the stones of Greece. Alongside the keener, the Jesuit soldier, Father Michal McGrail, in a low, fierce voice, proclaiming the stations of the cross for the people of the Middle East and declaring to us that the good man <coughs> always will be destroyed by evil men. Jesus falls for the second time. He is getting weaker and weaker. I came back down the mountain and I found Brendan Flynn of Clifton sitting in the grass by the side of the road in the Long Acre, grieving. He told me of last Tuesday night at your bedside in Kerry. Back on the Mall of Westport, <coughs> a river undresses itself between walled banks, under young limes leafing on the North Mall and the South Mall. On facing seats, old ladies soldiering their agony with girlish pluck. The sun thrice dancing on the mountain peak, as my father always said it would do. <coughs> In the name of the risen gardener, John, good morning. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, James. Good morning, Lydia. Good morning, Eileen. I am in the town of Westport, and you are Easter over Crowpatrick. Moloch me igamus tu. I will praise you in camus. I'd like to read this piece for um, Dervla Malloy. Today I met David Kelly, actor in the street. Outside Adams, fine art auctioneers on Stevens Green North. Instantly in the sun, we fell to reminiscing about how our dear dead mutual friend, Donald McCann, who died almost to the day this week, 10 years ago. But Paul, I must tell you, about my father's funeral. Well, there he was in his coffin in the hearse, you see. And of course, I was in the mourner's car behind. Now, my father was not merely an ordinary man. He was the most ordinary man in the universe. He had had his name in the newspapers twice, when he was born and when he died. But as we drove across the city to Glasnevin Cemetery, I noticed passers-by in the streets doffing their hats or blessing themselves. Wasn't that absolutely astonishing? How my father would have been delighted by it. How he would have deeply appreciated it. Dondal, and I'm sure he had a ten-ton hangover, came to the removal the previous night, and, I am sure with an even worse hangover the next day, he came to the funeral and to the cemetery. I cannot tell you how touched I was by that. Such immense kindness, such immense sensitivity. Oh, yes. And you know, 
I was 80 myself last Saturday. This yoke, David Kelly actor, twirls his malacca cane across his garnet-buttoned wine-red velvet waistcoat before swaying off into the multitude. It used to be for style. Now it's, it's simply to hold me up. Golden mothers driving west. The inevitable call came from the Alzheimer's nursing home. Mummy had been sitting there in an armchair for two years in a top-story room with two other aged ladies, Deborah O'Donoghue and Maureen Timoney. The call was to say that between 3 and 5 a.m., the three of them had gone missing from the room. At first it was thought that all three had slipped out the window ajar in the hot, humid night. But no, there were no torsos in the flower bed. It transpired that a car had also gone missing. Was it thinkable they had commandeered a car? At five in the afternoon, the police called to say that a Polish youth in a car wash in Kinnegad had washed and hot-waxed a car for three ladies all of whom were wearing golden dressing gowns, standard-issue golden dressing gowns, worn by all the inmates of the Alzheimer's nursing home. Why he remembered them was that he was struck by the fact that all three ladies were laughing. The ten minutes it took him to wash the car, I am surprised by laughter. At 9 p.m., the car was sighted in Tarman Barry on the Roscommon side of the River Shannon, parked at the jetty of the Emerald Star Marina. At 9.30 p.m., a female German child was taken to the police station at Longford by her stepfather. The 11-year-old had earlier told her stepfather in the cabin of their hired six-berth river cruiser that she had seen three ladies jump from the bridge. Her stepfather had assumed his stepdaughter imagined it. As she was, he told police, a daydreamer born. The girl repeated her story to the police, how three small, thin, aged ladies with white hair had all at once, together, jumped from the bridge, their dressing gowns flying behind them in the breeze. What colours were the dressing gowns, she was asked. They are wearing gold. Wreathed on the weir downstream from the bridge, police sub-aqua divers retrieved the three bodies, one of whom, of course, was my own emaciated mother, whose fingerprints were later found on the wheel of the car. She had been driving west, west to Westport, Westport on the west coast of Ireland, in the county of Mayo, where she had grown up with her mother and sisters in the War of Independence and the Civil War. Driving west to Streamstown, three miles outside Westport, where on afternoons in September in 1920, ignoring the roadblocks and the assassinations, they used to walk down Sunnyside by the sea's edge, the curlews and the oyster catchers, the upturned black currucks drying out on the stones, and picnic on the macker grass above the seaweed, 
under the chestnut trees turning autumn gold, and the fuchsia bleeding like troops of crimson-tooted ballerinas in the black hedgerows. Standing over my mother's carcass in the morgue, sheep's skull on a slab, a girl in her birth gown blown across the sand. I shut my eyes. Thank you, O oh golden mother, for giving me a life, a spear of rain. After a long life searching for a little boy who lives down the lane, you never found him, but you never gave up. In your afterlife, nighty, you are pirouetting expectantly for the last time. A petit déjeuner with Breda. On my last day in Paris, by getting up at the crack, I'd have the canteen to myself. In my 64th year, I'd be free to say my private farewells, my stricken last words to the city of all our dreams. About to munch my stale baguette, the swing doors slid open, and there she was, in her slippers and pyjamas, her open peignoir, the pretty breeder from Limerick, doing a PhD in business studies. Having filled her tray, and without saying a word, she sat down opposite me, stoking her silence like a veteran fisherman, before, without warning, giving me a tongue lashing. Do you, as a male, have any idea, <coughs> the slightest idea, what it is like to be a woman? She glared at me with a ferocity of all of her 23 years, with all of the self-righteousness of her murderous innocence. She seethed and spittle-scarred. Every man <coughs> ought to adore me. But you, on your sabbatical in Paris, Monsieur Le Poet, you failed to adore me. You failed <coughs> to give me the obeisance that is my due. So be off with you now to Charles de Gaulle. Go back to home to Ireland in the drizzle, to your slummy bachelor pad, to your pigsty of self-pity. Be off now with your limp tail between your legs, but remember always my tongue. <coughs> Gulping back my vile coffee, I carried my tray to the trolley like an altar boy to the guillotine and slid it in sideways. At the door, I turned and paused, hesitantly, very, very hesitantly. I will, reader, I will. Thinking about suicide. Although I may never commit suicide, I spend parts of each day thinking about suicide, thinking 
about how I lacked the courage to do it. I wake in the morning with 60% depression, and that's how it remains for the whole day, except for the odd occasion in a year in the doorway or on the street I meet by chance, for a few minutes a woman passing by who has the time to stop and talk for three minutes, or five minutes, or, or even sometimes seven or eight minutes, who rocks back on her heels in her pink hooped skirt with laughter, no matter what the topic. Depression and despair are two different states of mind, not having a lot in common. Although I have 60% depression, I do not despair. I do not see eye to eye with Samuel Beckett, who disapproved of suicide and who promulgated the doctrine of going on for the sake of going on. Estranged from my family, if I do not soon take my own life, others will take it from me. Hooded males with knives in their tracksuits, or medics in their scrubs prancing corridors, or cowpat-faced ward sisters smirking, or ice-cold proprietors of old people's homes. How is it that you do not see it, Samuel? that I do not want to go on for the sake of going on, seeing the same old, tired-out, impressionist paintings again and again. Men are such po-faced bores, each one of them an editor-in-chief. I want to stand still by the water's edge. I want to hold a woman's hand for the last time. I want to fill my pockets with Paleozoic stones. I want to open my eyes. Michael Dan Gallagher down at the sound, 10.30 a.m. You're looking great. Are you going to a wedding? Oh, God, no. I'm coming back from a wake. <laughs> a man besotted by his batch. <clears throat> In the Spar supermarket on Merrion Row, opposite O'Donoghue's public house. When I presented my basket at the checkout, to my dismay it was taken not by one of the many Polish girls manning the checkouts, but by a short, stocky, curly, red-headed male Dubliner screeching to himself the Owl Triangle by Brendan Behan. And the Owl Triangle goes jingle jangle all along the banks of the Royal Canal. He was all bonhomme, but not excessively. He commented on my every item. But when I handed him my batch loaf of bread, he seized up, swooned, swayed, roared, Jesus! He exploded. A batch! He continued as if performing an aria in the Messiah. When I was in Australia, 
and don't get me wrong, I loved it in Australia. Every Dublin man should spend time in Australia. But the one thing I missed was my batch. After seven years in Perth, Jesus, you should see the women in Perth. When I came home to Dublin, the first thing I did was to go out and buy myself a batch. And I came back with my batch and I smeared two slices with dollops of butter. And I made one gorgeous ham sandwich. The women of Perth, oh Jesus forgive me. But there's nothing, not even a Perth woman, to beat a batch. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Have a good day. <laughs> Let's read this piece for Fiona Murphy. The old guy in the aisle seat. On the eight-hour flight from Dublin to Chicago, I chattered non-stop to the passenger in the seat inside me. I was on the aisle. Am I going mad? Is a question I have asked myself in the last three years. More and more I ask myself. If you were a woman in the inside seat on an eight-hour flight and the man outside you in the aisle seat spouted for eight hours in a monologue as wide as the Mississippi and as long as the Nile with tributaries and digressions and floodplains and whatnot, would you consider him a little, you know, more than a little? Maybe even in the process of? of going not stark raving mad, but of going timidly fully clothed to bits. It was like watching a white-haired waterfall, the key to which has been lost. It never stops falling, but goes on and on and on and on and on and on. The foam of its toothless grinning flecking his jaw, his eyes hopping up and down in their pigeonholes. The answer has to be, Yes. I am an old guy going out of my mind with isolation, virginal, as an adolescent girl in a lobotomy ward on a trolley waiting her slot. <clears throat> a cast iron excuse. Sorry I cannot come to your reading tonight. I have to go to the South Pole. <laughs> I'll finish now with the, uh, these two pieces, and the first of them is Love at Last Sight. <laughs> we met at <clears throat> we met at the Stole Writers Week. Morning, noon, and night. She wore pale blue, textures of, boats of. Even when she was sporting saffron or emerald, her hue was blue. When it came time to grimace goodbye, she 
proffering a mottled hand, did complain, we will never see each other again. One of the three most self-contained women I ever knew. She was 82. And this last <coughs> excuse me, piece is called The Ballyshannon Trucker. Crouching outside the Cafe Java with a cappuccino on a chilly, breezy morning in early February. That man will do anything for human company. When who do I see strolling towards me out of 25 years ago, as out of the middle of a phone call, or out of a vision in the desert in New Mexico, or out of the dry cleaners of a previous era, or out of the black shawl of the Spanish arch, or out of a roadside cafe in the highlands, or from the far side of a bar that no longer exists, but the Ballyshannon trucker in the same gear, blue jeans, blue baseball cap, black leather jacket, only maybe looking younger, white hair and all. Like all great truckers, a quiet guy, who lives for his wife and his two daughters, who works harder than almost any man I have known. Will you have a coffee? I sing. I will, he smiles. There and then, with no big production, no intro, no ado, we chat about only the things that matter. When you're high in the cab, in the depths of Newfoundland, the Mounties on their walkie-talkies telling you that the road to Cornerbrook is blocked with snow. Ditto Gander, Goose Bay, St. John's. He suggests to me a difference between what it means to be spiritual and to be religious. Breathe deep. Heavy trucking. Keep moving. As we stand up to shake hands, to say farewell, he explains to me also how his wife, Mary, has asked him to buy one large head of cauliflower. How proud he is of his errand and of her. Mary, Mary, hold on tight. And down they went. A tourmacady girl with her Sam Shepherd. In the mountains of your dread, there you feel free. Holding hands, they careered down the fields and the walls, into the towns and the cities, and by ferry and air crossed over the oceans until he started driving and she came home and a child was born. Adieu to thee, my Ballyshannon trucker. Breathe deep, heavy trucking. Keep moving.
I'd like to thank Izzy and the venue team for winning the battle against the sirens and for making us so comfortable. I'd like to thank you for your rapt attention, though. How could you do anything else? And above all, I'd love to thank Paul Durkin for that wonderful reading. Thank you. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.